you know, that, there was sort of a, um, a uh, confluence of factors, mm. right? Yeah. Um, that kind of led me to, to questioning a whole bunch of different things and looking for support. Mm. And I remember thinking to myself, who can I talk to about mm. how to navigate being an early stage, mm. you know, VC backed founder? Yeah who's also a new mom, who's also an older mom, <laughs> whose husband right. is also an entrepreneur. Right. Like, how do I navigate all these different right. things? Yeah. And I I went looking around um, for, for people who may have gone through something similar mm. just to get their thoughts. And right. it was shocking how few uh, people there are right. that I could have this conversation with. Right. I mean, shocking. I found one in the end, one woman. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the MHV Podcast. We speak with leading founders, VCs, and operators on their journey in Southeast Asia. Learn more at www.monkshill.com. Hey, Susli, good to have you. Hi, Jeremy. Yeah, well, uh, we've been working together for the past year, so I guess now people get to see what our working dynamic is like. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Susie, you know, we're here just to kind of like chat about your life, right? And you've had quite an interesting life for sure. And, you know, we'd love for you to take us all the way back to the beginning because you've shared some, you know, great stories about your time growing up in Indonesia. And so I'd love to hear what was it like growing up. Yeah. Uh, wow. We could spend a lot of time talking about that. So um, just a little bit of history, I guess. I was born and raised in Jakarta. Mm. Uh, both my parents were actually from the island of Sumatra, but mm. they, they, they moved to Jakarta in, you know, adulthood, early adulthood, got married mm. and um, had me. Yeah. And I have three other siblings wow. um, afterwards. So I'm, I'm one of four. Yeah. Um, Born and raised in a, you know, relatively average family. Mm. Both both my parents, uh, well, actually, I guess it depends on how you how you define average. My parents are really different people from right. one another. Right. Uh, my mother is incredibly studious, you know, skip grades, really, really smart. My dad um, actually uh, dropped out of school. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So, I've, 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 you know, I grew up in a family where I think um, both my parents maybe didn't have all the opportunities that they could mm. have had, right? Mm. They they mm. sort of finished high school and, mm. and never went mm. uh, much further. And my dad ended up becoming an entrepreneur shortly mm. thereafter, mm. Um, which he still does today. Right. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, we, we grew up in a, in a suburb uh, in the north of Jakarta, uh, went to a national school. Mm. Um, yeah, nothing particularly noteworthy, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, I have tons of tons of cousins and second cousins. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there's that big family mentality, um, but resources were always scarce for them, mm. their generation, mm. right? So our, our generation was sort of the first one where they were like, oh, you know, all these opportunities to, mm. you know, make sure they go to good schools, make sure they do all these extracurriculars after school, <laughs> the typical stuff. Yeah, so that's kind of how I grew up. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I was I was the one they were strictest with. Um, I've got two other sisters right. after me, and then the youngest yeah. is, is my brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's ten years younger than me? So yeah, wow, huge, huge, huge range. Mm. Um, but we're all four of us are quite different people. Right. Um, so my sister, who's a year mm. younger yeah. than me, uh, we kind of grew up because we're so close in age, doing a lot of things together. You know, we right. haven't started our first job together, but right. she's now a doctor. Yeah. So she's like doing something completely different. Right. Um, have always been incredibly 
precision oriented. Right. You know, she did mathematics in in university, so she's like the quant sciencey, <laughs> yeah. precise yeah. person. Um, and then my my other sibling um, is an entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah. So she runs she runs her uh, she co founded a company, and then my brother also is an entrepreneur, but a creative. Oh, so interesting. He runs a uh, digital marketing agency. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah wow. Yeah, yeah. There's a so, whole family so, of entrepreneurs, including Yeah, which dad. was never intended. But somehow I think there's maybe some subconscious uh, influence there. Because of your dad being an entrepreneur? I think so. But also generally, I think um, within the Indonesian kind of culture, if you will, the business culture anyway, right? There's always the expectation that the best outcome is if you work for yourself. Right. Right. We're yeah. talking about... You know, less of a tech, uh, you know, founding kind of right, mentality, right, right. but more of a, you know, sort of the or mom and pop micro entrepreneurship mm. culture, which I think is prevalent, actually, not just right. in Indonesia, but also across, you know, most of Asia, right. I, I would say. So there's always that, uh, you know, implicit expectation that at some point in your life, right. maybe you'll work for yourself. You yeah. know, maybe it's a small scale business, but it's 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 something yeah. you built, right? Like yeah. there's a lot of pride. Right. I know my, my father felt a lot of pride in what he's built. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did he involve you in helping out or did he encourage or discourage you to be entrepreneurial? You know, uh, it's funny. Like, oh, in school. Yeah, and, actually, you know, in the early, you know, in my early kind of like schooling years, uh, we were all very studious. Right. Um, all four of us. And uh, my dad was sort of more of a maverick, right? He runs a trading right. business. He right. trades um, marine equipment. Right. So this is not, this is a very sort of relationship-driven business. Right. It's it's very much about, you know, importing, exporting. Right. Um, yeah. And he, I think he's always had very low expectations that any of us would really follow in his footsteps. Oh. So yeah. the extent to which we, we did get involved uh, <laughs> because we used to go visit him. Right, yeah. Yeah, I used to go, you know, ride with my dad in his car and then go visit him and then just look at, I mean, this is really boring stuff, right? right. This is like huge ropes of different sizes. Yeah. Um, this is like tons and tons of like anchors right. and like bolts. Like we're not talking small bolts, right? These right. are for large, large ships. Yeah. Um, so like we always play with the binoculars. <laughs> that's the stuff that we like to play with. But yeah, that's the impression I, you know, the impression I had growing up that my dad is, is very involved with. It's very physical, right? Like right. these days we think about businesses as being very computer focused, right. tech, you know, right. on the cloud. But it was nice to kind of grow up around, you know, physical assets yeah. and learning about business because you move things around. <laughs> yeah. So that was always very fun. Do, do you think he was ever like supportive to, for you to be entrepreneurial in terms of attitude? Or was he more like study is the best because I didn't get to study? My, I think yeah. my mother had that outlook more yeah. so than my father right um my father was you know he's 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 what i consider to be a true entrepreneur right, right. this is a person who has always had so many different ideas he wanted right. to pursue it's like right. so much in his blood he couldn't work for anyone if he wanted to like <sighs> i mean he just he's not that kind of person he's right. always had ideas that he wanted to realize um whereas my mother was very much like stability you know mm. make sure that um that you take advantage of all the opportunities that you have make sure right. you get educated because that's the way out of you know that's the way to get um access to, to right. more, more opportunities so there was always that a little bit of a tension between the two because again like they're two very very different people right and i think that in the early days all of us were sort of you know went went down that known path right, right. Of, of getting a career of you know studying doing well getting a job working for other people mm. you know going up the corporate ladder all four of us did mm. some version of that mm. and it was only later on in life that we were like oh you know maybe there are opportunities to do something else <laughs> maybe we want to you know try something different right yeah yeah and there you are like you said you know contrasting you know your mom versus your dad right yeah. so so you're also doing that and the study dynamic 
yeah. that was going on. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, I think we were quite quite lucky that all, all four of us did you know relatively well in school mm. and had opportunities that perhaps our peers didn't didn't have right mm. Um, mm. back when I was growing up in, in Jakarta um, you could not attend international schools unless mm. you have you know a non-indonesian passport mm. and so we we went through the local system right right the local education system which was you know in bahasa although later on we went to a national plus school um, mm. in secondary school mm. where you get a little bit more exposure to english but mm. you know everything primarily is in is in bahasa mm. and you follow the national kind of exam mm. examination system and then you do english maybe you know a few hours mm. kind of a week sort of thing but we we all you know all four of us kind of had did, did relatively well. I mean, you know, to my mom's credit, I mean, she put us <laughs> through a lot of, you know, like <laughs> a I'm lot edition. of like extra, you know, tuition, et cetera. Um, and we ended up all going to, to really good schools, right? Right, um, yeah. Um, I, I went, my sister and I, my, the, the sister right after, you know, closest in age with me, two of us went to Yale. Mm. And it was so funny when we got that, um, um, when, we, when we heard about that. Because um, my, my parents didn't know what, what yeah. Yale was. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. they were like, oh, is it the lock brand? You know, you remember, <laughs> yeah, you remember yeah, the yeah, Yale yeah, lock yeah. brand? And they were like, oh, what, what are those? Um, yeah. and, and so there was very little expectation, I think, thankfully, um, set by my parents while we were growing up to necessarily achieve certain, mm. like, there were no expectations right. beyond just, you know, doing well, right? Right. Like, doing well in school. And so I think we were quite lucky to have, to have been accepted. And mm. I think that actually, and I like I like to tell the story because I think that set me on a different path in life. Right. The opportunity yeah. to go to an Ivy League school, right. which was frankly, you know, unheard of. Right. Even today, the Yale community is tiny in Indonesia. Mm. So I, I consider ourselves to be incredibly lucky to have that to have had that opportunity. Mm. How did you? even discover that Yale existed and that you should apply to it? Because I think that's a big, you know, gap, right? It's not even just applying for it, but it's just yeah. even knowing that you can apply for it. Yeah, you know? oh, it's okay. So well, I got to rewind a little bit. So I, you know, I, I grew up in Jakarta until I was about 18 years old, mm. right? And, and right around the time uh, of the Asian financial crisis, mm. uh, 1998, was the time when I, I, I turned sort of 18 around that time. And my parents were, you know, like many parents, uh, legitimately kind of worried and, right. and thought about um, sending me abroad mm. and me and my sister uh, abroad for schooling. So we ended up very abruptly, mm. uh, right around the time of the Asian financial crisis, um, in a boarding school in Australia. Mm. And ended up doing the international baccalaureate program, right. which was, you know, not really known in Indonesia unless mm. you went to like an international school, mm. right? So mm. we ended up doing that, and I think off the back of that, because it's it's an internationally accredited program, mm. and because we were in Australia, we sort of got exposed to maybe a, you know, a higher education options that we wouldn't otherwise even mm. have heard of, right? So that was the time when we considered, oh, you know, maybe we should just, yeah, you know, just. Try it out and, and put in some applications. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. So that's kind of how we, we, we ended up applying to American universities. And what was it like? Um, do you remember what was it like to receive the offer? It, to be honest, I, again, like very low expectations. We yeah. were just like, oh, you know, let's just try it out. Right. Like, because at that point, you know, once you've sent out one application, you might <laughs> you might as well send out like multiple them, applications. Right. right? Yeah. And I actually still remember my um, my, uh, you know, student counselor right. in my boarding school right. sort of like, are you sure this is what you really want to do? Because at that time we had been encouraged to apply to Australian universities mm. that offered a full scholarship. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, and we were like, well, you know, let's just try it out, right? Yeah. And the only thing you had to do, really, okay, 
actually it was a lot of heavy lifting, right? You have to do SAT and then you have like fill out all these application forms and then you have like write a bunch of college right. essays. But, you know, we were nerdy kids, so right. it's not like we had anything else to do. And so my sister and I both decided to do it. Yeah. Um, so by, when we found out, it, you know, we were ecstatic. Mm. Um, and I think we were quite lucky that we were able to go partly uh, on scholarship because mm. it was, yeah. know, it's, these, these things tend to get very expensive. Yeah. And also partly because our parents uh, wanted to support us. Right. right? Yeah. So my sister and I actually got accepted at the same time. Wow. So it was like two kids going at the same time. <laughs> and my parents were like, wow, okay, I guess you guys should go. And so, you know, <laughs> they were quite happy for us. And I remember actually, uh, funnily enough, our, our, our hometown, you know, had like, had like this hometown newspaper that wrote an article about us. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can about, imagine. About the yeah. two of us. Um, I think my mother still had a clipping of it somewhere. I'll love to see yeah. that clipping, actually. Yeah, That'd yeah. Be so oh, my God. I remember, you know, wearing something super nerdy. <laughs> so one day I'll dig it out. Um, so she was, she was, you know, they were both incredibly proud, right? Especially yeah. my mother, because she she had always felt that she would have wanted to continue her studies if yeah. there had been an opportunity. Uh, right. It just wasn't available for her. Right. So, so it was yeah. a dream come true for her. Yeah, yeah. So both both of us, my sister and I, felt like we we kind of owe it to her to live vicariously, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and yeah. realize her dream for, for her, yeah. Yeah, just really being the first... Uh, People in the family, first generation yeah. uh, college student. That's right. For university. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And what was it like, you know, going to Yale? I mean, because there's also, you know, a lot of change, right? Because now you're in yeah. Indonesia, then you suddenly go to Australia, yeah. and then now you're in the States. Yeah. yeah. And Yale's yeah. quite different from, I mean, the US is, and the East Coast yeah. is quite different from Indonesia. It is. It is. Yeah. I mean, it helps that we'd, we'd been kind of in boarding school yeah. for, for about a year and a half yeah. Yeah. before that. But I remember going to Yale. I mean, it was in hindsight, I remember it very fondly. Right. It was yeah. a fantastic four years. Right. I couldn't have asked for a better experience. Right. Um, when we first started, it helped that I had my sister with me. Oh, yeah. That's me so um, fun. Like, even, though, like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, even though our parents yeah. actually didn't even come to visit until, right. you know, a few years later because right. it's so far away. So yeah. we'd, we'd always had each other. But there was a very small community of right. Indonesians, actually. I remember our year, it was just the two of us. Right. And and then um, the whole, you know, in, during the whole four years, there may have been two or three other Indonesians, right? Mm. Um, so it was a very small community. So we'd gotten used to really making friends with people from everywhere. Um, and I remember that, you know, my, I remember meeting people that are just so interesting. Uh, my first roommate was a, you know, five feet nine um, uh, lady called Elizabeth who rose. So she's mm. part of the crew team uh, from the south, right? And it's just like you know, com like some you know somebody that I, <laughs> I'm just not a very physical person. Like I'm not an athlete by any means, right? And so it was really interesting to kind of you know look at her and how disciplined she is, her family upbringing, which is actually right. really conservative and right. really really lovely uh, parents who right. were very welcoming to us right. and and just getting exposure to you know all these people from everywhere, right? right? Like the representation of international students at the time was about 11%. So, you know, not 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 huge, but like sizable. Right. Um, and then like just tons of very welcoming uh, American friends yeah. that I still keep in touch with today. Yeah. Any fun memories of uh, undergrad? Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> well, where, do, where do we begin? Um, <laughs> I'll tell you this. I was... Oh, maybe this is more nerdy than than anything else. Um, I went really heavy into uh, singing. 
Oh, really? Uh, I was in the acapella group, oh. which which Yale is very well known for. Okay, like yes, there's like a million is, of them. This is like the equivalent of is, you know fraternity and like sororities. That's very Yale, very very huge. Uh, very huge scene. I, I did that. I was in the Glee Club. I was you in the repertory the chorus. Club. Oh my god! I just did so many. In hindsight, I probably should have branched out. Yeah. and do other things. Uh, but I ended up going just really headlong into that. In my senior year, I ended up directing or art directing a musical. Like yeah. I was just, I mean, Yale was fantastic for that. Yeah, I did right? love that. Yeah. The drama school is right there. Yeah. Like, tons of really great opportunities all the right. time. Student productions. Um, Amazing. So I, I, I took advantage of that. Um, wow. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. So I got to ask, are the Glee movies realistic? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the the you know, the West Wing stuff is true, right? Like every, um, okay, so this is now a long time ago, for those of you who remember the West Wing. Yeah. But uh, the, the Yale has a has a premier male acapella group yeah. um, called the Whiff and Poofs, yeah. who's been around for like apparently 100 years, or whatever, something ridiculous <laughs> like that. Um, and they would always, like the actual group would perform right. um, on West Wing um, every now and then. Right. And so that's real. Um, the, the, the Glee Club, I'm uh, sorry, the, the Glee staff yeah. is sort of partially kind of real. I mean, that's more high schoolsy yeah. than it is college. Um, where we do get featured, you know, uh, oh, what's that TV show called? Gilmore Girls. Gilmore Girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's a little bit of that happening um, as well. Yeah. But yeah, no, I remember Yale incredibly fondly. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I had to miss our 15-year uh, reunion just Aww. due to COVID. Oh. But I went for a 10-year and it was just, I mean, it's just every chance I get, um, I love going back. Yeah. So do you sting today? Not not in the last, yeah, okay, so so I tried to uh, yeah. throughout you know, my early career. In fact, I, I joined, uh, I, I conducted actually. Yeah. Um, I conducted um, in our acapella group as well. Oh yeah, I'm divulging way too much now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I used to sing for a group. This was all 10, 10 odd years ago now. Um, and we do yeah. less acapella, although it is a non-instrument, um, yeah. but but sort of less kind of like the small knit group, but like a larger group. Um, but yeah, I have, just haven't had time to do it anymore. Oh, what a shame. Well, I'm sure you sing as a hobby. I do, right, I do, yeah. I do. Uh, and people people hate taking me to karaoke because they're like, <laughs> no, you're supposed to be silly. Like, no, I take it very seriously. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. there is a startup that lets you have a karaoke at home. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yes. uh, go on with those at home. Yeah. So there you are, and you know you're doing Glee and and acapella, and then you become a management consultant. Uh, yeah. Just like me, right? So I gotta ask, how did that? Happen? Yeah. So you know, and in university, I I double majored in economics because right. you know I, I didn't know what else to do, and in Chinese literature because okay. I'd always had an interest. I mean, I didn't think I would make a living out of it, but it was just something yeah. that had always interested me. Right. So coming out of university, to be honest, I went down management consulting because, to be honest, yeah. I just didn't know what else to do. Right. And so tons <laughs> of people just did it because. You know, it's a nice place to kind of yeah. sharpen your toolkit yeah. uh, for yeah. two years yeah. and use it as a platform to, uh, you know, figure out what else you want to do. Yeah. So when I got an offer to, to do management consulting in New York, I was like, why not? Right? right. Great. Like you're exposed to a bunch of really smart people. You get tons of training. You get really good at, you know, right. strategic thinking, all these different things. And you get to live in New York, you know, yeah. you know, what? What what else could you want? Yeah. So that's kind of how I stumbled right. upon management consulting. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like? Do you remember your first day on a job? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, I do. I remember it was October 3rd, you know, 2005. I started in New York office and my first project was in Toronto, Canada Ooh. in the winter. 
Oh, how was that? I have never been to Toronto, Canada, and it is seriously cold. I mean, you think that you know the East Coast is cold. Right. You go, for, you know, like a few latitudes up um, uh, north, and and you're in Toronto in the winter, and it's just unbelievable, yeah. unbelievable. I mean, they've set up. I mean, I really like Toronto, but yeah. you know, going there in the winter is really quite, yeah. quite, quite a challenge. They they've set up this labyrinth of underground passageways yeah. because people just don't want to go up. Like they don't, wanna, you know, they don't want to be walking down the street. So that was, I remember that uh, was my first project, yeah. and. Um, um, I remember my first team. Right. Uh, I mean, none of them are are in, are in consulting right. anymore. Although all of them are still in financial services. Right. Um, it was it was three other guys and me. Yeah. Uh, actually, four other guys and me. Yeah. Uh, one was a Yale uh, college friend. Right. right. So, so that's it was fun. it was nice. Um, and then uh, there were and one actually is funny. Well, our project manager is a Yale PhD. Yeah. Um, and then my two other uh, consultant uh, teammates are, are both from Harvard. So it was, it was yeah, <laughs> an interesting great. dynamic. Yes. Uh, to, to say league, uh, to say the league. least. I know uh, that's a, not a normal uh, composition, but that ended up being my first project. Um, were you I, scared, uh, stressed? You know, just like you know. Or were you like cited since that was your first job? In yeah. Um, wow, that was so long ago that it's, it's hard to. I, I think it, because it was my first job, um, because it's really intense. Um, I was in a financial services practice, right. which is also tends to be you know, super quantitative, right. lots and lots of industry jargon to pick up on. Mm. It was a little bit stressful. Right. But. The way I think consulting is set up, right, right. in the project with sort of um, different roles covering different things, I felt like there was a lot of support. Right. And so learn a whole lot uh, in those early days and actually really enjoyed it throughout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I really enjoyed, I'm a structured person, right? So mm-hmm. I enjoyed kind of the project management aspect of mm-hmm. it, the strategic thinking aspect yeah. of it, um, the fact that you know, consulting tends to rely very heavily on on certain heuristics, right, mm-hmm. um, that you've learned. So enjoyed those. Although... I was never sure that I wanted to do it for life, but it was a great experience. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because you not only were a management consultant, you were also like chief of staff. Mm-hmm. And so you were servicing the Southeast Asia region as yeah. well. So, yeah. you know, why that transition between like, say, you know, a management consultant to yeah. a chief of staff? Yeah. So I had started in New York, right? right. Um, and then uh, was asked to consider moving to Asia mm. as the company was mm. expanding. Right. And so moved to Asia, really enjoyed it, um, covered, you know, Asia Pacific, including Southeast Asia yeah. at the time. But I had sort of always had this nagging feeling um, that I wanted to try something else. Mm. I've always had a passion, if you will, for mm. policy, for mm. for doing something um, outside of just pure kind of business. Mm. And even within business, you know, after after four years of consulting, I was like, well, you know, I really want to see something from start to finish, right? right. Like, it's nice to be, it's nice to have exposure to mm. really senior decision makers right. and influence their thinking, but I want to get a taste of what it means to execute. Right. And so I actually had a very open, honest conversation um, with my manager at the time and the partners. And they offered me basically an um, internal role uh, that didn't exist before. Mm-hmm. And they said, why don't you pioneer this? Why don't you go write your own job description, right? Yeah. Like we need, now that we are six offices across the region, mm-hmm. we need like somebody to actually manage right. manage that. And so I pioneered the Asia Pacific Chief of Staff role, which allowed me actually a really nice, uh, you know, 
under the hood mm. look at how a company is run. Mm. Mm. Um, not just strategic decisions that needs to be made, but like kind of the nitty gritty, you know, how do you do fund transfer pricing from one country to the next kind of stuff, right? Right. Um, how do you craft your HR compensation kind of policy, right? Stuff that you don't necessarily get involved right. with when you're just giving advice. So I spent two years doing that, working very closely with the partnership group. And out of that, kind of got the bug of like, oh, I really enjoy being an mm. operator. Mm. Um, and, and that kind of set me off on a different path. Wow. Yeah. And this different path is where you start off your MBA program. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is quite interesting. Yeah. So yeah. why yeah. did you choose to do MBA? Is that is that because you were like, oh, I want to be an operator. So one of the things I enjoy doing is learning even today right right, every year I try to learn something new you know um, whether it's a new language whether it's a new skill you know whether you know I picked up jazz piano one year Mm. Um, you know I I, I like I like learning languages Mm. Um, so I've always enjoyed inherently learning Um, so going to graduate school was in some ways a bit indulgent Mm. (laughs) because I miss being in that environment Mm. uh, of learning but it was also I think um, a way for me to 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 almost force myself to reconsider where I wanted to go with my Mm. career I had initially wanted to do a master's in in development, right? International Mm. relations, international development. But actually, one of the partners at the consulting firm I was working with kind of challenged me to think about also doing an MBA because he Mm. said, this will give you kind of a little bit more versatility to pursue, you know, more career options. So I stumbled across a very good joint degree program. Mm. Um, And so I went to the Wharton Wharton for MBA and then Johns Hopkins, Mm. uh, which was in D.C. that has a very good international relations program. Mm. Yeah. So that's, I don't know, what I did. Yeah. And it's interesting because why did you want to choose, I mean, not just the MBA, which is for, you know, studying mm-hmm. and business, but also the international development angle, right? So yeah. why international development? I had, uh, at one point in my career, um, really seriously considered going into public policy. Mm-hmm. So whether it's at the national level or or at the international level, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I chose being in D.C. actually, because I wanted exposure to the different development financial institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, so the IMF, the IFC, you know, mm-hmm. the different kind of uh, development banks, because I felt that a lot of what I'd done, remember up, up to this point, I'd been in financial services for about six years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt like financial services... You know, could could be used in so many different ways to affect policy, to affect national level changes, to really tackle the big problems. And mm. so, I wanted as an experiment to try out what it would be mm. like to work for these large organizations. Mm. So that was part of the reason. And I also love, you know, uh, <laughs> again the nerdy side of me. Uh, really enjoyed the courses uh, when I was doing my international relations mm. master. Right, this mm. is theory of international relations. This is like learning about macro- macroeconomics uh, theories, econometrics. I mean, I love all that stuff. Mm. Public-private partnerships. Right. Um, some of it was sort of more from the intellectual angle, right. but also from the practicality of how do you influence the behaviors of large systems, mm. and how does the principles of private sector. This is also interesting because from what I recall is that you also start doing investments uh, mm. after this as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. So there you are. If you're like, you know, you're testing these different hypotheses. I am, right? I, I was. I was yeah. very much deliberate yeah. about that. So when I went to grad school, I knew I had sort of three years and two summers. Yeah. Um, and so I had a lot of hypotheses I wanted to test for myself. Right. So one is uh, from a functional point of view, right? right. I, I've been a consultant. I've tried a little bit at being an operator. Should I test out being an investor? Mm. Because to me, 
Um, I had, I wanted to, you know, all of us, right? I think at some point our career decisions are driven by a sense of wanting to to feel like it's meaningful, Mm. that it fulfills you at some level, Mm. right? And so for me, I was like, okay, so what are the different ways for me to utilize what I can bring to the table and and make it meaningful. Mm. Um, And so I tested out investments. um, And at the same time, so that's on the functional side, at the same time, I was like, well, this is like early 2010, that the beginning of that decade, right? I was like, well, okay, Southeast Asia sounds really promising right now, right? Um, Mm. Indonesia in particular, where I'm from, where I feel the most affinity to, Mm. um, had gone through kind of a series of economic and political Mm. uh, transformations, if you will, and I felt that there was a a window of opportunity to to do something. So combining those two, I ended up spending my two summers working Mm. in investment in Indonesia. Right. Uh, in a in a very kind of deliberate way because I had questions I wanted to answer right, right. is investment for me and do I want to work mm-hmm. and and really kind of you know return to Indonesia and build roots there right having spent the yeah. first half of my career elsewhere right yep and yep. so you proved out that you wanted to be back in Southeast Asia yes and what's interesting is that yes. instead of going on you decided to become a founder instead yes yes <laughs> so, so, so yes so, yeah. yeah there's a bit of story there too so uh, much as I enjoyed the investment um, kind of uh, journey there because it just it gave me exposure mm. to so many different projects and mm. personalities and like industries etc um, I ended up through the course of those two summers meeting entrepreneurs. Mm. Um, and really sitting across the table from them, got excited about what they're doing and realized that there are so many opportunities for building something mm. and that you know wh- what's missing really isn't capital per se, mm. but it was really good companies to invest in. Right. So that got me thinking, that mm. sort of planted a seed in me, um, and then, you know, over the next year and a half or so, I ended up becoming increasingly fixated with a particular problem, mm. which sort of launched my entrepreneurial journey. Mm. And that problem is, uh, looking back now, that problem has always existed in my mind, right? But it just didn't materialize um, until until that point in time, which was access to education. Mm. This has been such a theme in my own life. Right. Even when I was at Yale, uh, my reflection at the time was has always been that Indonesia was incredibly underrepresented. Mm. You know, I look at China, I look at India, I look at Brazil, right? Mm. From a population standpoint, Indonesia is the fourth um, after you know China, India, and the U.S. Mm. But nowhere near the same level of representation. Mm-hmm. And this pattern is repeated when you go look at Indonesia in, in the international stage. Mm. And I know that statistically, it's not possible that Indonesians are, you know not as smart, for mm. instance, right? There are other systemic reasons for why this is the case. Mm. And then I compare it to a country like Singapore, which is way smaller, but has always been, you know, punching above its mm. weight in terms of representation. Mm. And so I'd always felt that at some point in my life, I was going to look into this problem and try to see mm. how I can do something about mm. it, you know? In the in the early stages of my career, the thought was at some point in my life, I might maybe contribute to a scholarship mm. or something like that, right? Mm. More as like, something I do on the side rather than the focus of my career. But then, you know, at at one point I started thinking, well, if I care about this problem, is there something that I can do Mm. and spend my career trying to solve this problem? And that started me off thinking about how can I best 
help with the problem of access to higher education. Mm-hmm. And because of my background in finance, there was very natural sort of like, okay, well, education financing. Right. It, that's one of the barriers, right? right? It's not the only barrier, but it's one of the many barriers uh, for those in places like Indonesia right. um, for them to, to pursue higher education. Right. Yeah. And what was that like, you know, because, you know, you chose to be a founder in something that you cared about, right? Which is in yeah. access for education. Yeah. Um, and yet it's also a very different way to approach the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Because you got approached it, like you said, from a public policy angle, uh, you could approach it from a financing and investment angle. Yeah, yeah. And you chose to be more of a founder. So what was that? Yeah, yeah. I think I think you're like, right. Yeah. Um, it's a multifaceted problem, right? You can tackle it from an education delivery mm. point of view, uh, mm. quality of those who provide the education, mm. curriculum point of view, policy, mm. and financing. For me, I landed on financing for two reasons. One is what I can actually do, right? I'm not qualified mm. to tackle <laughs> the mm. delivery problem, right? Mm. Um, and then secondly, also because I was looking, I was looking for a solution that is commercially viable because mm-hmm. I believe that ultimately for something to have huge, massive impact and relevance, it has to be scalable. Right. And for it to be scalable, um, it has to have at the core a commercially viable model. Mm. And that kind of brought me to the idea of creating, you know, an education financing company. Mm. You know, education financing as a concept has worked in many different parts of the world, in many different forms, right? Like with or without government um, uh, involvement, et cetera. There are many ways to try and package it. The question is, how do you customize and adapt it such that it works in the local Mm. context, whether it's Indonesia, the Philippines, you know, whichever market it is, right? Because the dynamics are different. Mm. And you'll see that across a lot of the emerging markets, which is still true today, there is no government program Mm. when it comes to, Mm. um, you know, affordably paying for Mm. education, Mm. right? We can talk at length about that. That's probably a topic for a separate podcast. (laughs) But I basically became convinced. And actually, I actually worked for the Asian Development Bank and the World Mm. Bank first to try and solve this problem. Right. Um, I spent, you know, on and off 18 months trying to do that with mm. large organizations attacking mm. it from a policy angle. Yeah. But then ended up um, ended up basically concluding that the easiest way to get started oftentimes is to do it yourself, right. do it quickly, experiment and fail quickly. Right. And that's yeah. what I ended up doing. And what was it like? Because, you know, when you've started that process, you know, you're also very early on the Indonesia startup scene as well. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah, it was very yeah, much yeah, decent yeah. at the time. Yes, yes, so what yes. was it like? Yeah. This was what, 2015, 2016, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for those of you who are more clued in, in the fintech world, um, you know, at the time there was no, the government didn't know what to do with it. Uh, there was a whole <laughs> slew of fintech companies coming, coming, you know, coming on board. Um, we were one of the first people to to you know kind of be part of that Indonesian you know regulatory sandbox uh, mm. for fintech, right? Mm. Incredibly nascent, yet at the same time it was bubbling up, right? Right? You will you would recall that the Gojeks and Grabs of the world had started maybe a few years earlier, mm. and that's really starting to to gain a bit of traction. So yeah, I think for us it was just you know for me and my co-founder um, Naga, uh, it was just more driven by. There was a window of opportunity. There was a real need mm. for a solution, right. and you know why not us? Right. And so we just sort of went went into it. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And what's interesting is you know there you are, you're building, and I remember you telling me about how you ended up 
becoming the first female founder from Indonesia and YC. Yes. Uh, yes. So, and obviously <laughs> everybody loves YC, you know, the brand, the Y Combinator. Yeah, well, what was it yeah. Like? yeah. You know, to be honest, right, we thought um, getting into Y Combinator would help us attract talent. Yeah, but yeah. at the time, most people we spoke to didn't know about Y Combinator. <laughs> um, that has really changed, even yeah. just in the last three, four years. Yeah. But at the time, you know, we didn't get that much lift from YC yeah. as, as much as you thought you, you thought we would. So to put it in context, right, um, there hasn't been many Indonesian companies at all that have gone into YC, mm. you know, male or female, mm. right? We were maybe like the third company mm. from Indonesia to have ever been. Um, and that's really more a function of sort of, you know, how many international companies apply to YC to begin with, right? Mm. Which is super accelerated in the last mm. um, in the last few years, you know. I think the, the latest batch, the current batch at YC right now have like at least 17 companies coming from mm. Southeast Asia, mm. right? Um, so that's, that's just grown immensely. Right. I think for me, you know, YC had always been something that, to be honest, at the time was a question mark for us whether or not we should do it. Because we, my co-founder and I were building, you know, a non-US business right. for a non-US client base. Right. Um, and we had asked ourselves, well, is this a relevant program to go right. through or not? But at the same time, uh, you know, one of the earliest batches of YC founders were actually college classmates of mine. Mm. And so, you know, I kind of felt like, okay, maybe maybe there is something here, right? Maybe there's something that can be learned here. Uh, maybe the rigor that YC would force us to to go through for the, for the three months in the program would actually make us a better company. Right. I mean, because the truth is we didn't know what we were doing, right? Mm. Like we were first-time first time founders. So we decided to take the opportunity um, and yeah, spend three months in Mountain View, uh, California, back when you can you can still do these things, <laughs> and had a really great time. Yeah, right. Because the orientation at YC is very much about the users. Right. It is about building something that people want. Right. Um, and that user centric discipline, I think, is just incredibly focusing. Right. Yeah, which is what we needed at the time. Right. Yeah. And what was it like? I mean, you know. Um, you know, obviously being there, did you feel like it was like fun? Was it scary? What, oh, was it? Yeah. it was. Because I know everyone's rushing towards that demo day as well. Yes, yes. So everyone's hustling. Yes, um, everyone's hustling for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, but but actually, yeah. it was incredibly. Yeah. Uh, what's the best way to describe it? I mean, you know, back then, um, our batch is a lot smaller than the current batches, right? Mm-hmm. But even then, it was still it was still quite large. It was like 120 something companies. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, plus or minus two to 300 founders, right? So I wouldn't claim that I knew everybody, mm-hmm. but the the spirit of it was very, it almost brought me back to sort of my, my college days, right? right? Like it was sort of very, yeah. everybody was trying to be helpful right, 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 to right. each other. We didn't necessarily see each other as competition, right? right. People were freely sharing about things. And I think YC fosters right. uh, that mentality. So it felt more fun than anything else, right? You right. were there to learn. You could ask stupid questions. These are people who are very pragmatic. You have access right. to unbelievable resources, right? right. People who have founded and exited companies, people who've seen like a million iteration of whatever it is that we're building. We were building a student loan company, right? right? Which is which has various iterations in the in, in the in the in the US. And mm. so for us it was both great for learning, incredibly fun. Mm. It was great to see other founders and have really honest conversations with them. Mm. Some of the things that we tackled during the program was stuff like hard stuff like founder dynamics mm. or like having hard conversations, right? right? With your early hires, with your early angels, whatever it is. Mm. And so, yeah, no, I know I, I super enjoyed it. And w- people would always ask me, you know, would you do it again? I said, yeah, definitely. I would right. do it again. Yeah. yeah. And as the first Indonesian 
you know, female founder. Yeah. And of course, I'm pretty sure there was very little Southeast Asia representation back yeah. then as well. <laughs> yeah. So how do you feel like, you know, being the, I guess, minority of minorities? Yeah. <laughs> uh, YC? I might have been the only female founder from Southeast Asia in my batch, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so just to kind of contextualize right, right. No. in my batch and this might be different uh from other batches in my batch there was about about 27 percent women mm. um and 14 percent only uh 14 percent female founded businesses mm. right where where the where the founding team are all women oh okay Got so, it. Yeah. so i'm part of the 27 right because right. my co-founder is, is a guy but even then right that number is relatively low however that number is a lot higher mm. than market Mm, right? right market number is something a lot lower even today right if right. you look at vc money and how much of that is going to to mm. female founders right. um that number is like single digit right something crazy right um so so at yc they, they did a really great job of of also pairing us uh, with mm. female founders right right so i remember one of the folks that i i actually interviewed us and then later on interacted with us was uh, adora chung mm. from um, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, so she was a founder of a company, also a YC company, yeah. um, which then, which then folded. Mm. But she was very uh, open right. about her learnings mm. and really supportive. And so we got to meet a whole bunch of other female founders and also alumni, right? Yeah, uh, that were based in in San Francisco at the time. So I felt like there was a strong community there. Mm. But to be honest, you know, at the end of the day, right? Like we're all trying to build. A company, mm. um, and and so, you know, whether or not you're a woman building it or a man building it, I mean, mm. really, at the end of the day, for me, you know, didn't didn't really have that big of an impact, right? Yeah. Uh, there, there's no, I mean, there's nothing that makes you more or less of a founder, right? Just because of your gender, right? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. And you know, what's interesting is that you know you're at this point in time bringing a lot of different experiences, right? Obviously, mm-hmm. experience as a consultant, as an investor, yeah. and an operator. And now you just really focus on, you know, founding and building and scaling the business. Yeah. Uh, what was that like? I mean, you know, any tough moments you remember? Oh, all um, them. <laughs> I, I'll say this. Being a founder is by far the hardest thing I've ever done. Right. And I think every founder will say this, right? Yeah. Because it really is. Yeah. Um, people are motivated differently when they decide to go down this path. Right. Um, I was very clearly motivated by a problem. Mm. I wanted to solve a problem. Um, other people are motivated, you know, because they they're a creator. They right. just can't help themselves. They want to mm. build something. They want to create something, right? And they want to see that to fruition. Um, you know, other folks are motivated by, you know, maybe the financial opportunity, mm. right? Like wanting to become a unicorn, etc. All all of these are legitimate, but so much of it because it goes to the core of who we are. Yeah. So much of being a founder and ends up being meshed with a lot of your personal practicalities of life but also Mm. like your ambition you know your aspirations you know how you view yourself how you interact with other people Mm. and so it's it's by far the hardest thing i've ever done and the most i've learned about myself Mm. uh, being 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 a founder right yeah yeah Yeah. i joke about how your relationship with your co-founder for instance right Right. it is incredibly intense i think for most for most people who who have that co-founding relationship would know and, and through that, you learn so much about yourself. You right. learn to be honest about who you are, what you want, mm. what are the things you are optimizing for, what are the things you will not compromise on. Mm. These are things that you eventually, you know, have to have to kind of acknowledge about yourself, right? right? Yeah. yeah, tough. I agree with you. I think being a founder is the toughest job I've ever done <laughs> as well. <laughs> but, but can be incredibly rewarding, right? Yes, very yeah. rewarding. Yeah. Also the toughest for sure. And what's interesting, of course, is that, you know, Eurodify has grown from strength to strength. 
And, you know, what's interesting is that you two also raised venture capital, right, over the yes, years. Yes, yes, So yes. tell us more about what was it like to be raising venture capital as, as a founder. Yeah. One thing I like to, you know, whenever I talk to founders these days, um, you know, one question that is at the forefront that I feel like every founder should ask is, do I want to build a venture-backable business? Right. Because I think, you know, taking VC money sets your company in a very different trajectory in right. terms of, you know, the expectations, the lifestyle, the pace, mm. the the goals and targets you set mm. yourself, all of that, you know, kind of have implications on almost every every part of, you know, how you built your business and how you live your life, right? Mm. Um, and so for us, it was a very conscious decision to take VC money because, again, it goes back to the whole wanting to create something that's commercially viable and scalable. Mm. We weren't interested. I know I wasn't interested to solve a small problem. Mm. I wanted to solve a big problem and solve it for as many people as possible. And one way to do that is to raise VC money, mm. um, both not just not just for the capital, right, but mm. also for the know-hows, for the expertise, you know, for the discipline that investors bring to mm. the table. That, that I think is very useful. So at YC, post, well, around Demo Day, we ended up raising our first mm. institutional round mm. uh, where we took money from other people. Up to that point, we sort of bootstrapped mm. very deliberately. Right. In fact, you know, the first few loans we make were to students at UI, Universitas mm. Indonesia, which is um, a top state school in Indonesia, just out of our own money, right? Because mm. we just wanted to test it out, right? right? There's yeah. no point in trying to use other people's money for this when you don't even know if what you have is viable. Yeah. So the first set of loan books were just like us using our own money mm. um, and, and, and kind of experimenting. So we raised our first round, our seed round, and actually the composition was 70% VC and 30% mm. angels. Mm. And of the VCs that we raised, you know, most of them were um, Southeast Asia-based because mm. we felt like we were building a Southeast Asian right. business. We wanted kind of local, yeah. uh, regional know-how. And all the folks that we closed from uh, are people that we've had relationship with. Right. So these yeah. are not people that we just met on demo day. Right. right? These are yeah. people we've had conversations throughout, you know, since inception, which hadn't been that long up until that point. But because of my background as well, some of them I'd already known, you know, even before. Mm. Um, and so we raised, um, you know, we raised a seed round, actually welcomed uh, Mong Seal Ventures mm. as an investor mm. uh, during that round. Right. And we raised also from a couple of others, uh, Indonesia focus funds, right, Intudo Ventures, as well as uh, Convergence Ventures, which mm. is today known as ACV, mm. as well as Patamar Capital, right. which is which has more of an impact, impact right. angle. And then we also onboarded a bunch of angels who, you know, are either um, kind of at tech, fintech specialist, or kind of mm. very, very well established in, in the markets we're in. Yeah. Uh, later on, so we used that and expanded both in country in Indonesia and into a new market. Mm. And we went to the Philippines in 2019 and actually did really well there. Right. And then off the back of it, uh, raise a Series A. Yeah. Um, at the Amazing. at the end of last year. Yeah. And, you know, of course, you know, the question i got to ask is, you know, and during this time, you also made a transition to change roles again yes, yes. Uh, and move from founder to venture capital. Yeah. And so talk us through how that process yes, went through. Yes. Um, this is this is this is very much a, uh, you know, cuts to the core of the personal stuff that I was talking about. Right. Mm. I had been an investor before being a founder. So mm. in, in some ways, it's sort of coming back full circle. Mm. I still remember the first day that I thought about what became Erudify. Mm. It was during a personal retreat mm. uh, when I was sitting down and asking myself, what do I want to do with my life? What mm. what what problems am I obsessed with? Right. And what do I want to dedicate kind of the next, you know, I don't know, three, five, seven, eight, ten years mm -hmm. to doing? Yeah. And that was the beginning of what what became a business plan for Danachita. Uh, which means aspiration funds in Bahasa, mm -hmm. which is the you know the Indonesian platform of right. of Irudify. 
um, the parent company. And that was seven, eight years ago, mm. right? I'd spent the better part of the last you know, seven, eight years focusing on a particular problem mm. because no one else was, Yeah. right? The government wasn't doing it. Private mm. sector wasn't doing it. Banks certainly aren't doing it. Mm. Schools aren't doing it. Right. And, you know, right around the time, what was about six, 12 months ago, I began kind of, you know, reevaluating my life as you should do every now and then, as, as I would encourage everybody to do every now and then. And I looked at this problem and what I set out to achieve mm. and felt that to some extent I had achieved it. Today, mm. there is a thriving company, Rudify, which is solving this problem at scale mm. in Indonesia and in the Philippines. Right. And we aren't the only people doing it, right? right. There are other companies now that mm. are rising up as well to right. try and tackle the problem. So to, to a large extent, I felt like I'd, I'd, I'd achieve what I set out to do. Right. And there was also a personal element, right? One of the things that I learned having been a founder is that my strength and my nature makes me a multiplier. I am best suited to grow a company, mm. right? right? And so this is, you know, I could do the zero to one, right? but I am best at the one to a hundred. Right. And so in search of flow right. and having been a founder and having realized that actually the founding journey is difficult right. and it's, it was difficult for me in, in many ways. And part of it is, is, is life stage related and, you know, being a woman related. Mm. I wanted to sort of now spend the next chapter of my career, a focusing on something where I could really lean into flow mm. and then be kind of contributing to a larger extent to building the ecosystem, right. having experienced what I experienced. Right. Yeah. I, I wanted to give female founders a voice. Mm. And I wanted to, you know, all throughout my fundraising journey, I have never pitched to a female partner. Mm. Shockingly. Yeah. Shocking, right? Right. And so I also feel that there is something to be said there, not so much because I think, you know, there's something better or worse about a woman or a man. Mm -hmm. I just think that it's good to have a diversity of opinion right. and perspective. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to, you know, th that kind of tipped it for me, right? Like I wanted to be able to give the sort of support and voice that I felt was lacking in my own journey. Mm. Yeah. So that kind of led me to switching over to becoming a VC. Wow. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's deep, right? Because I mean, obviously, a part of it is your personal professional journey in terms of self-discovery about how much you care about this problem and how much you solved it today. And I also think you're also being a pioneer, right? In honestly solving another problem that you solve, which is that no women <laughs> in VC. And so, you know, like, yeah. you know, that's a problem you saw. And I it's think changing it's, yeah, though. I'm, I'm, slowly, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm seeing sort of good trends, um, yeah. but yeah, but not at senior levels, unfortunately. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that you are in many ways, you know, still being a founder and pioneering and, being um, representation, I think. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I'll tell you, I'll share a story. Um, when I had my son, we had just completed as a company, mm. um, you know, a round of layoffs, right? Mm. This is something that happens quite often. Mm. And every founder sort of expects that this would happen at some point. But when it happens, it's still difficult. Right. It's a difficult decision that you have to make and execute. But ultimately, it's, it's kind of in the best interest of the company. So I, I remember going into labor right after we'd done kind of a round of layoffs and then going into my maternity leave off the back mm. of it. And then coming back to work, COVID hit. Yeah. Right. So it was a series of sort of unfortunate events, one after the other. And around the same time, we had started raising, you know, our next our next mm. round. And so that forced a lot of, 
you know, that, that was sort of a, um, a uh, confluence of factors, mm. right? Yeah. Um, that kind of led me to, to questioning a whole bunch of different things and looking for support. Mm. And I remember thinking to myself, who can I talk to about mm. how to navigate being an early stage, mm. you know, VC-backed founder? Yeah who's also a new mom, who's also an older mom, <laughs> whose husband right. is also an entrepreneur. Right. Like, how do I navigate all these different right. things? Yeah. And I I went looking around um, for, for people who may have gone through something similar mm. just to get their thoughts. And right. it was shocking how few uh, people there are right. that I could have this conversation with. Right. I mean, shocking. I found one in the end. One woman. <laughs> <laughs> And and I and and you know I, I I've always been I think incredibly lucky in my own founding journey that I, I've never felt like it was a problem in any way for me mm. being a woman right like mm. fundraising I've always felt that you know I could do it as well as any other person right recruiting you know managing the business being taken seriously all that stuff was never an issue but there is something to be said about some of the things that you go through in life and you know the ability to talk to somebody who's been through something similar. Mm role models or, you know, uh, people who you have affinity with because you come from the same culture, you come from the same background, you come from the same, whatever it is, right? Mm. And I think there's just an underrepresentation of that in the tech ecosystem at large. Mm. Um, part of it is a function of, I think a lot of founders are very young <laughs> in general, right? Uh, yeah. It's a nascent ecosystem in, in Southeast Asia in particular. But for me, I it was difficult, it was hard, and I just want to pay it forward. Yeah. Wow, amazing. Um, pay forward. I think that's a good phrase to uh, wrap things up here. I'd love to summarize the uh, three big themes. Sure. That I had. Uh, you know, uh, as any good management consultant would do. <laughs> three bullet points. <laughs> three bullet points. Like, you know, write yes. it down. Yes. Uh, I think the first is, you know, of course, thank you so much for uh, sharing what it like to grow up in uh, Indonesia mm -hmm. and yep. as a kid of uh, the oldest uh, of four, uh, the most responsible maybe. <laughs> <laughs> <We'll see. laughs> uh, the most guilt-tripped uh, <laughs> of the four. Uh, but also like talking a little bit about your dad being entrepreneurial mm -hmm. as well as your mom being studi studious and how that all kind of came together in terms of your educational yeah. journey. Um, I think the second that I really like was I think sharing a lot about, you know, the big breaks, right? You know, the discovery moments uh, of you know, going to Australia, discovering Yale, discovering your joy for uh, acapella and glee and, <laughs> and discovering management consulting and discovering uh, about coming back home to Southeast Asia and discovering like the exact roles and problems that you wanted to tackle. Um, and I think that's a very crisp way of just, you know, showing like, you know, life is kind of like a squiggly, you know, yes, not a linear yes, thing. Yes, yes. Um, and I think not everybody's brave enough to talk about it. You know, everyone trying to simplify into like straighten all the squiggles and make it into as clear a line. Mm. Uh, I think, and I think that's a very powerful set of descriptions. And then the third, of course, is you know just the the good conversation about you know obviously being a founder, right? Um, yeah. Uh, the tough moments, uh, the real moments, the problem discovery, um, going to YC as the first uh, female Indonesian founder, and you know the pros, the cons, um, mm. but also um, you discovering that there isn't much representation of women in Southeast Asia VC. Mm -hmm. uh, and all I can say is uh, I'm glad that you saw this problem and that you're here today <laughs> uh, to solve that problem. Well, yeah. I, I don't know if I can solve it per se. I just, I just... <laughs> I don't even know if I can contribute to it, but hopefully, right? I'll, I'll do my part. I'll try to do my part. <laughs> well, awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so yeah. much, Steve, for coming today. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the MHV podcast, please share this episode with your friends and colleagues. 
Go to www.monkshill.com for more founders' journeys, company building advice, and insights into regional tech trends.